right, let's get started. Last time, we talked about the fundamental assumption of statistical mechanics, which is that a closed system is equally likely to be in any accessible state. We talked about ensemble averages. The ensemble is the idea that we're going to take that system, it's always capitalized, which is the collection of particles we're interested in, draw a box around it and not allow it to interact with the rest of the world. Now, the system could be in any accessible state. We don't really know. So the way we do math about the system is to mathematically take many, many copies of the system, one for each accessible state, and then average over that. The whole collection of accessible states is called the ensemble, and we take ensemble averages. So the average of any quantity x is the sum over x times the probability of that particular <coughs> x coming up. And we studied two systems in thermal contact. We found out that the way to write the multiplicity function for the total system was to take the multiplicity of the one system times the multiplicity of the other system and sum over all the ways to divide up the spin on both sides. The entropy we defined last time, sigma is the symbol we're using for that, it's the log of the multiplicity. The reason we did that was because multiplicities are absolutely huge. And it was a little weird intuitively to have to multiply two things when we added two systems together. When we go to the entropy, which is the log of the multiplicity, now we can add entropy. So when we add system one to system two, the total entropy is now the sum, which we like. Temperature we defined as du by d sigma. That's the change in internal energy as you change the entropy. And we held everything else constant, being number of particles and volume. We also covered a lot of the thermodynamics. I'll leave the window open. Uh, I think the window is making the room hot and noisy. Well, anyway. well if we deal with a, an open window. Last time, we studied the laws of thermodynamics. The zeroth law is that if two systems are in thermal contact and then one of those is in thermal contact with another, they're all in thermal contact. So they're all in thermal equilibrium have the same temperature. The first law is that heat is a form of energy. So the way that we will consider, uh, cons that we will conserve energy in statistical mechanics is we need to uh, talk about heat. Okay, so heat will be defined as when two systems exchange energy. The flow of energy from one system into the other, that is heat. Does anyone come with to shut that window? Bottom. Yeah, all right, yay, Max, thank you. Second law. <laughs> All right, let's hear it from Max. The window shutter. And <laughs> second law of thermodynamics is that if the system is left alone, the entropy won't go down. It might stay the same, it might increase, but it's never going to decrease on its own. The third law is that entropy approaches a constant as the temperature goes to zero. That's one of those laws that when you do the statistical mechanics perspective is completely obvious, right? We've already defined the entropy as the log of the number of accessible, of accessible states. When you go to zero temperature, really, there's most of the time going to be only one accessible state, which is the ground state. And then what's the log of one? Okay, all right, so entropy has to uh, approach a constant as temperature goes to zero. So what kind of, yeah, in what situation would there be more than one accessible state? At, at zero okay, that's an excellent question. This actually came up uh, and surprised condensed matter theorists when it came up. There is such a thing as uh, a quantum ground states that are degenerate. So if you have a system that has
kind of the very lowest energy has a couple of ways to happen, then you can have some degeneracy left over. It's an odd situation. It's not going to come up in things that we study. But when it, when it arises, the technical term for that is broken symmetry states. Usually the, usually the system will end up just choosing one of those ground states, even though there's a whole bunch of others it could have chosen that were degenerate. So we're going to neglect that possibility. It doesn't come up in things that we study. Great question, though. Question would it, here. Would it take the same state every time? Oh, I have this question. All right. So now we're, now we're talking condensed matter. The type of systems that have those degenerate ground states, there's no telling which one they'll choose every time you raise the temperature and lower it back down again, which is why we call it a broken symmetry. There was sort of a symmetry in the problem in that every ground state was equal, but you'll only pick one when you go down. So here's a classic example, in case anybody's interested in reading up on this. If I have uh, a magnet, a magnet is where, uh, what, you, what generally happens in a magnet is you have little atomic um, current loops going on, okay, so the electrons kind of get a little magnetic moment going. And so it's a little atomic electromagnet. When they all align, you get a ferromagnet is what we call it, but that's your refrigerator magnet. So down that, all the little current loops align and you get a ferromagnet. Now, there's nothing in that problem that tells me which way they're going to align when they do it. There's a tendency for them to align, but that's all. It's a tendency for them to align. So every time I raise the temperature on a ferromagnet and then lower the temperature again, I'll get a net magnetization. That is, they'll all kind of choose one direction to mostly be in, but it could be in any direction. And that's, that's what you're getting at. Is that there is, there are a few ground states accessible. You don't know which one you're going to get into. Great questions. Any other questions about that? So as far as this class goes, we're not going to deal with those complicated situation. We will assume we have systems where there's a well-defined quantum ground state and there's only one quantum ground state. So think hydrogen atom, for example, has a well-defined quantum ground state. Great question. What we're going to do today is learn the Boltzmann factor. We'll define what that is. We will also talk about the partition function which is basically how is energy partitioned in the system, how is it divvied up. We will look at the two-state system again and look at uh, the energy. We'll calculate the average energy of that system and we will define heat capacity today and calculate the heat capacity for that system. We will introduce the definition of a reversible process. That is a process you can, you can take it one way and run it back the other way and it will look the same. Pressure, we will write a definition for, and we will also introduce the thermodynamic identity, which is a relation among energy differentials in thermodynamics. So let me start with probability. And we want to study this two-state system first. Okay. Now, what I'd like to do is to keep things well-defined. I'd like to study a small system. That's this small system here. Okay. And I'm going to assume that the small system, for now, has only two states available. A state with energy zero, which would be a unique ground state, and a state with energy E, which would be one and only excited state. And that's all I'm going to include in this problem, for now. So, two possibilities. Think, for example, of one spin in a magnetic field. Okay. If it's aligned to the magnetic field, it's at low energy. If it's disaligned, it's at high energy, for example. Now, to keep things 
Um, to keep things well defined, what I'd like to do is put the small system that I would like to calculate in contact with a very large system. And when you do that, put a small system you're interested in in thermal contact with a very large system, you call the very large system a reservoir. So here's the reservoir. And the point of the reservoir is that it can trade energy with a small system, but nothing else. We're not going to let it trade particles or volume or anything like that, just energy. Okay, and these together will define the system. So the total system has an energy, U, and now there are two ways to divvy up the energy. We can either take all the energy and put it into the reservoir, which leaves the small system we're interested <coughs> in with zero energy, or we can do this, where we have energy epsilon in the small system and energy U minus epsilon in the reservoir. You with me so far? Okay, just a simple model system, and we're going to do statistical mechanics on the small system. The purpose of the reservoir, sometimes you hear that called a heat bath. It's just so that we can know we have enough statistics around to really define the temperature well. So let's look at the probabilities then in this system. There were two cases, either that the small system has zero energy or that it has energy epsilon. When it has energy zero, its multiplicity is g of zero. The large reservoir has multiplicity g of u. Now, the way I define the problem is that there's only one way that the small system can have energy zero, and there's only one way the small system can have energy epsilon. So g of zero is really one. g of epsilon is also one. So what I'd like to look at then is the, the relative probability of those two cases. Okay, what's the probability that the small system has no energy? What's the probability that the small system has energy epsilon? given that it's in thermal contact with a large reservoir that's holding a particular temperature. Now, the, the probability for this case, for zero energy, needs to be, well, what are the multiplicities, what's the total multiplicity of the state happening, divided by all the multiplicities that are possible, right? So all the multiplicities that are possible are basically this case plus that case. So we always to take a total multiplicity of two systems together, sum over the multiplicity of the left-hand side times the multiplicity of the right-hand side, and the sum is over all the ways they can trade energy. Okay. So, for example, you know, when we have two systems in contact and the right-hand side has 10 ways to be and the left-hand side has two ways to be, the total multiplicity is 20. And then they need to add another term for when they've exchanged a little bit of energy and another term for when they've exchanged energy again. So probability of, of zero energy in the small system is g of u times g of zero divided by the total multiplicity. Now g of zero is one. There's only one ground state that I'm allowing for the small system. So the total probability of zero energy there is g of u divided by g total. The probability that the small system has energy epsilon, I use the same type of formula. Now it's g of u minus epsilon, right? Because in that case, the reservoir has lost epsilon <coughs> energy and contributed to the small system, divided by g total. But g of epsilon is also one, only one way to have this, uh, the small system have energy epsilon. That, by the way, that, that's by definition of a problem. Okay, we can be more complicated in the future and allow for, for degeneracies. For now, no degeneracy. So probability of epsilon is g of u minus epsilon divided by g total. Now, the ratio of the probabilities, okay, probability that the small system has energy epsilon divided by the probability that it has zero energy 
is just the ratio of the multiplicities. But notice, notice what happened here. I want the probability that the small system has energy epsilon divided by the probability the small system has no energy. And that ended up being equal to the ratio of multiplicities of the reservoir. Okay, so left-hand side is about the small system, right-hand side is about the reservoir. Any questions so far? Okay, where we're headed with this is we're going to take this definition and uh, we'll derive the Boltzmann factor. So this ratio of probabilities, as we said, the ratio of multiplicities in the reservoir. And we've already defined the entropy as the logarithm of the multiplicities. <coughs> so I can rewrite this ratio of multiplicities. And instead of g, I can use e to the sigma, because sigma is entropy. So now this ratio of multiplicities gets written as e to the sigma of u minus e divided by e to the sigma of u. I just, just rewrote things, okay? Now, <laughs> there are sort of two tricks that physicists know how to do. We know how to take Taylor expansions, and we know how to solve the harmonic oscillator. Okay? <laughs> so today we're using trick number one, which is take a Taylor expansion. So here's the formula for a Taylor expansion. And what I'd like to do is take the numerator, okay, e to the sigma of u minus e, and I'd like to expand what's up there in the exponent, sigma of u minus e. So sigma of u minus e will be approximately equal to sigma of u minus epsilon times the derivative of sigma, with a few other terms that we're going to throw out. Now, when I take a Taylor expansion, what's the condition that allows me to take a Taylor expansion and throw out terms? Pretty much always take a Taylor expansion. When you throw out terms, I made an assumption. Something small. Yeah, something has to be small. Needs to be a small expansion parameter. So am I justified in doing that here and throwing out those extra terms? This has small. Compared to what? To what? U. Okay, that's right. So I have to have some sort of dimensionless number that's small. So the energy of the of uh, the system epsilon needs to be small compared to the energy of the reservoir. Okay. And by virtue of how we set up the problem with the reservoir as a large system. That's going to be a fine assumption. So we're justified in taking the Taylor expansion. Now, so I have sigma of u minus epsilon times the derivative of sigma, plus terms I'm going to throw out. The derivative of sigma, you remember from last time, is related to the temperature. Okay? So d sigma by du is 1 over temperature. We derived that last time because we found that when two systems come together, it's the derivative of the entropy with respect to the energy changes that eventually becomes equal on both sides. So that is the temperature, the thing that defines temperature. So now this is sigma of u minus s1 over tau. So I will plug that in <coughs> here in the exponent. Okay. Now notice that I have uh, as the ratio of probabilities e to the sigma of u minus s1 over tau divided by e to the sigma of u. So I can cancel out the e to the sigmas. That was the whole point. Okay. Cancel out the e to the sigma. I'm left over with this, e to the minus epsilon over tau, that's the ratio of probability. So the relative probability of having energy epsilon in the small system versus having zero energy is this Boltzmann factor, e to the minus energy over tau. Good, star came up. I'm hoping the star will come up. 
So Moulton's factor is really important, even minus energy over tau. Since it sets all the probabilities, that will end up being uh, the weighting factor that we use throughout the rest of the course. And here's, here's the foundation of it. Okay. Are there any questions so far? Yes? What is Sigma over two. Over two. Tau? Yes. Tau. Tau is our temperature. And it's in units of joules because we've uh, absorbed into it the Boltzmann factor. Boltzmann factor was kelvins per joule. So we've absorbed that into our definition of temperature. Tau is temperature. Any other questions? Yeah. Is that tau the equilibrium temperature? Yes. We're going to assume we're at equilibrium. Non-equilibrium physics and mechanics is uh, current field of research. So <laughs> I won't be teaching you that in this course. Okay. What does that actually mean by the, when you say probability of uh, EO or you call that sigma, I think, or probability of zero? What does that actually does, does that tell me the ratio?
systems that have a lot more energy available. In which case, we'll have to hook them up to a much larger reservoir to keep things in equilibrium. Does that help? Okay, so so far I've just defined it in terms of those two. Other questions before we go on? Okay, good, good stuff. So the ratio of probabilities is e to the minus energy over tau. The more general statement, okay, I only proved the special case, but the more general statement, and you can kind of see how it arises, is that when I do what Anna wants to do and take a system that's got more energy possibilities, okay, the more general statement will end up being the following. The probability that I find the system in energy one divided by the probability of finding it in energy two will be equal to e to the minus energy difference over tau. So the, the relative probability of finding it in either of those two states is determined by the Boltzmann factor of the energy difference. So what, what this will always mean is that once we include the effective temperature fluctuations, the system will be more likely to be in a lower energy state okay, as the small system is trading energy for the large reservoir. Most of the time, the small system will be in a lower energy state. Once in a while, it will get a thermal fluctuation that kicks it up to a higher energy, and then it will get kicked back down into the lower energy. But most of its time in the lowest energy state. Any questions? Yeah, it can. It's just exponentially small. And so you get high temperatures. So what do you do, like, what kind of physics do you have when you're in the immediate state where it's not, like, really, but it becomes more likely that it will be equally likely to be mm -hmm. equally Yeah, <laughs> more likely to be equally likely to equally state. Okay, so when you go to very high temperature, yeah. and your probabilities all become the same, then that's when our penny flipping game actually becomes reality. Because in the penny flipping game, we flip pennies independently, and each penny had its 50-50 chance of coming up heads or tails, and then probabilities didn't affect each other. They each had equal probability. So, in fact, the high temperature limit of any system is always a nice limit, because everything becomes uh, equally likely. And in that case, we say the probability distribution becomes flat. Does that answer your question? I, I don't know if I really clearly find the question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what? Maybe I think I think you're you're interested in the intermediate energy states. What happens to those? So what we can think about is if I take a system that has several energy levels. Okay. Then you know this is E zero, E one, E two, E three, and so on. Where those are order of energy levels. I have an exponential function that's going to, to determine uh, the probability that those states are occupied. So that determines the, the weighting factor of those states happening. So this state will happen with a probability that's proportional to e to the minus e naught over tau. This one will happen with probability e to the minus e one over tau, which is exponentially smaller. This one will happen with a probability that's proportional to its Boltzmann factor. And it's exponentially less likely, and so on. So you could consider, for example, the thermal occupancy of these states. This ground state will be very occupied. The first excited state will be exponentially less occupied. Second excited state, exponentially less occupied, and so on. It's kind of a trailing exponential as you go up to the rest of the energy state. 
Okay, now that we have the probabilities down, actually all we have so far is the ratio of probabilities, what I'd like to be able to do is use the ratio of probabilities to now take averages over the system. I want to take those weighted averages, the ensemble averages, and learn about the system. So I can calculate now, as a function of temperature, what's the average energy in the small system? I already know uh, two answers. At zero, at zero temperature, what do you expect the average energy to be? Okay, why do you say that?
the Boltzmann factor here. Uh, probability of epsilon is e to the minus epsilon over tau divided by 1 plus e to the minus epsilon over tau. Now I'm ready to take the ensemble average because I know the probability. So the average energy in the system is the sum over the possible states times the particular energies times their probability of coming up. So I just plug in now. For energy zero, I'm going to take energy zero times probability of zero. That term's going to drop out. I'll take energy epsilon times the probability of epsilon. And that gives me the average energy in the system. So this one drops out zero times the probability. This one is epsilon times e to the minus epsilon over tau over one plus e to the minus epsilon over tau. That's it. We just took our first true thermodynamic weighted average okay, and found the average energy. What's coming up all over the place in these equations is a common denominator, okay? One plus e to the minus epsilon over tau. That ends up being what we've divided everything by to make the probabilities work out. This is going to be the partition function. The partition function tells us how the energy gets divided up in the system. The energy gets divided up in the system according to all the Boltzmann factors. So we had a problem where we only had two energy states zero and epsilon. So our Boltzmann factors were one. You'll notice that one is e to the minus zero over tau. This is e to the minus epsilon over tau. The general formula is where I sum over all the e to the minus energy over tau states. This is a general partition function. Okay. <coughs> it tells you the relative weighting factor of all those possible energy states. Any questions so far? So that is the partition function there in all its glory. V is the sum over S, is just the general statement we use. E to the minus epsilon S over tau, sum of the Boltzmann factors. Definitely get the star. Definitely commit that to memory and your life will be easier. Okay. Now, Here's where it came up, right? Everything had the partition function in it here. Where, uh, since we had, we had these forms for the two different probabilities, each probability, I can write a general formula for each probability as its Boltzmann factor, e to the minus epsilon over tau, divided by the partition function. Okay. So there's kind of two ways to think about the partition function. You can think of it as it tells you how the energy is partitioned up in the system, it also tells you uh, what's the factor you need to divide all the probabilities out. Okay, sorry. How do you, it tells you the proper normalization of the Boltzmann factor to give you a probability. Now, here's what's fun. Okay, now that we have a partition function, this ends up being one of the most useful results in statistical physics. It turns out that the partition function is going to be somewhat magical in that if you know the partition function, you know essentially everything about the system, and you'll be able to calculate any quantity that anyone asks you to calculate that's knowable about the system. Okay, so I give you a partition function on the final, and you can tell me everything. You can tell me the average energy, the heat capacity, you'll be able to tell me uh, any other quantity that I want you to calculate, the magnetization, anything like that. So here's, here's how the, the magic happens. 
we just took an average energy in the system, okay, which is U, the internal energy in the system, and we saw that that was the sum over the individual state times the quantity we were interested in energy times the probability of that energy. And I can rewrite that here, okay, since each probability is the Boltzmann factor divided by V. I just rewrite this as a sum over individual energy times its Boltzmann factor divided by the partition function. You okay so far? Okay. So, so you see this numerator here looks a lot like the partition function. What's the, what's the difference? What was that? Yeah, that's right. So the sum up in the numerator looks suspiciously like the partition function. It's just got an epsilon inserted in front of every term. Okay? So we've already used a trick in this class that will help us calculate thermodynamic averages. So we calculated, for example, the integral from minus infinity to infinity of x squared times e to the x squared dx. Uh, actually, there should be a minus sign right there. Otherwise, that integral will blow up very fast. So this is e to the minus x squared, the Gaussian, right? We took an average of x squared over a Gaussian. Remember the way we did that? We played a trick, right? We said, look, had there been an alpha here, had this been e to the minus alpha x squared, then I could play a game, right? I could take a differential of the whole integral with respect to alpha, right? If I take d by d alpha, of the Gaussian itself, of e to the minus alpha x squared, I pull down the x squared, okay? So this differential, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the differential can, can uh, trade, trade its order of operations with the integral, that's the legal. And then we knew the integral, right? The integral uh, of, uh, of the Gaussian, okay, integral from minus infinity to infinity of e to the minus alpha x squared dx, is root pi over alpha. And then we just took the derivative of that and got the answer out. So rather than having to take a new integral, we took derivatives of the integral we already knew the answer to. Okay. That was from lecture two. So the magic of the partition <coughs> function is if I were to take uh, average energies, for example, I can use a similar trick to pull down this epsilon. So what do you want to take the derivative with respect to if, if you have e to the minus epsilon over tau, what can I take the derivative with respect to to pull the epsilon out? Close. One over tau. One over tau. Okay. If I take the derivative with respect to one over tau, I pull out an epsilon. Actually, minus one over tau. So, dividing uh, one over tau of the partition function is minus sum over epsilon e to the minus epsilon over tau. Now, I can rewrite this average energy, okay, as minus d by d1 over tau partition function, okay. Alright, I'm seeing some skeptical looks, like, what did that give me? <laughs> it sort of looks <coughs> a little bit more complicated at the moment, but let's manipulate it a little bit further. Oh good, a star came up.
Oh. I actually downloaded the uh, theme song to Jeopardy, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's playing, but the speakers aren't pumping it out. Okay, so just uh, help with yourself. Okay, so what has the form? The form is F prime over S, derivative of S over S, and what has the form? You all know it. Thank you. <laughs> so it's a derivative of log. There you go. Derivative of log of f is f prime over f. And that's what you have now, okay, in this energy average. We took the average energy and we found that it's a derivative of the partition function divided by the partition function. So it's, it's actually a derivative of the log. So average energy is minus d by d1 over tau of the log of the partition function. So, okay. Now you know how to take average energy by giving the partition function. First you take the logarithm, then you take a derivative, then you're done. Okay, easy as that. It turns out that all ensemble averages can be manipulated like this. They can all be expressed in terms of derivatives of the logarithm of the partition function. So the partition function is your friend. Once you know the partition function, you can calculate anything else you want by, uh, you know, you start with the definition of the weighting factor, but then there are ways to re-manipulate it into an, an easier form to deal with, because you don't want to have to take infinite sums all the time, okay? You'd rather take a closed form for the partition function and use this derivative of a lot. Are there any questions so far? Okay. Go back and study those manipulations. This is on your, on your homework. How to use those kind of manipulations? You will extend it to the uh, peak capacity. Okay, peak capacity will end up being a second derivative of a log partition function. Questions so far? Oh, yes, get the star. Okay. So, speaking of heat capacity, we'd like to come up with a definition now for the heat capacity of something. <coughs> So heat capacity is basically the following question. How much heat do I have to add to something to raise its temperature by a certain amount? Okay. So things that have a high heat capacity are things that I will have to add a lot of energy to in order to raise their temperature. Things that have a low heat capacity, I can add only a little bit of energy to and they'll raise their temperature. So what, what's going on here is that it has to do with degrees of freedom in the system. If the system has a lot of internal degrees of freedom, uh, think squishy molecules. Okay. It has a lot of different modes inside of it. It has a lot of ways to store energy. That'll have a high heat capacity. Things that have a low heat capacity will be simple objects that don't have much way to store energy. So as a uh, concrete example, I'll go back to that slide in a second. So heat capacity is basically how much heat do I have to add to change the temperature of something. And an example is, is water. Okay, a water molecule has oxygen and two hydrogens coming off. Water is complicated. Okay? It turns out to have a high heat capacity because it's got a lot of modes to it. It's got, uh, this is a water molecule, it can kind of wiggle this way. Okay? It can rotate it through a couple of different axis rotations. So those are excitations of the water molecule microscopically, rotation in two different directions, wiggling this way. The hydrogen connected, my fingers can do this, but hydrogen can wiggle in towards it like that, okay? 
So a water molecule is pretty complicated and squishy. It has a lot of modes associated with it. What we'll see in statistical mechanics is that when we dump thermal energy into a system, all the thermal energy distributes itself into all the available energetic modes. Okay, so these vibrational modes of the water molecule, for example, each cost a little different amount of energy. If the temperature is enough, then those energy states will get occupied. Okay, and the water molecule, if the, the water molecule uh, is at a low temperature, it won't be doing much. It's at a high temperature, and there's enough energy in the system to where water molecules are whacking into each other in exciting vibrational modes and squishy modes and rotational modes. Okay, now there's a lot of energy stored in all the quantum states available to the water molecule. In that case, water has a lot of heat capacity to it. Okay, does that somewhat make <coughs> sense microscopically? Has anybody ever lived near a lake? Yeah. Who's lived near a lake? Okay, all right. Has anybody lived in the desert? <laughs> okay, <laughs> now, <laughs> which climate do you expect to be more temperate? Temperate means that the, the temperature stays pretty constant throughout the day. Okay, your experience tells you that when you live near a large body of water, your climate is pretty temperate. And when you live out in the desert, your climate is pretty extreme. Like, what, what happens at night in a desert? Is it hot or cold? I was an undergraduate in Pasadena, and I had always lived in a <coughs> temperate climate. Pasadena is semi-arid, it's not quite desert, but it's halfway there. And I was shocked that it could be so hot during the day, and then at night I needed a jacket in the summertime. I was surprised. Okay? And it's because the air there is very dry. There's not a lot of water in the air in Pasadena. And <coughs> so that means that the air, since it's lacking all these water molecules with their vibrational and rotational modes, doesn't have much heat capacity. Okay? you can add a little bit of energy to the air and it will raise the temperature quite a bit during the day. And then at night, when the sun's not shining on it and it's radiating its, its energy away, its temperature drops rapidly. Whereas if you live near a lake, the humidity's higher. Also, you have this big body of water, which is acting as a huge thermal reservoir. If you live near you know, the Great Lakes, that's a huge thermal reservoir in there of all these water molecules that have their vibrational and rotational mode. So when you live near a lake, not only is the water, sorry, the air is more humid, so the air itself has a higher peak capacity and it's harder to change. It has a huge thermal reservoir right next to your city, okay? With all those vibrational and rotational modes in it, with a, lakes have a very high heat capacity. So if you want a temperate existence, temperate climate, if you want a temperate climate, go live near something with a high heat capacity. Your choices are large hunks of metal, and bodies of water. <laughs> you can you can decide which is prettier to live near. <laughs> Are there any questions about that? That's that's the concept of heat capacity. Where does the thermal energy go microscopically? How does that? Oh, you have a question. Well, Good. I, I don't know. <laughs> Are you sure? Well, no, I was thinking something like something. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can also make a comment or tell a joke. You know, I've heard that certain people are not entirely sure whether a microwave, heating something up with a microwave keeps its thermal energy longer than an oven. Um, 
have some thoughts on that. Do you, does anybody know exactly which mode is being excited in the microwave? Well, don't they like just like the, like the magnetic Like, you could be right. I was told. I was told that it was a rotational mode. Um, you could be a dipole. I thought, and I got this out of Halliday and Resnick. Thank you. Thank you. I know what you're talking about. So <laughs> there's, a, there's oxygen and hydrogen. Okay, all right. And the hydrogen will try to hydrogen bond with anything around, especially the oxygen, which tends to be electronegative. So water molecules. You see, oh, this is a water molecule, right? So hydrogen tends to want to get near that oxygen. So, so your liquid water actually is pretty sticky. This is this is part of why it's sticky because of hydrogen bonding right there. And what I what I read in Halliday and Resnick was that this is the mode that you're exciting. Is between two water molecules that are hydrogen bonded. There's a little rotational mode. Could be the dipole mode.
Um, why does it take to speed it up? Good question. <laughs> so, as um, you're right, we, we'll eventually get into this uh, called the uh, Planck black body radiation. Everything that has a particular temperature, because it's wiggling and it's matter, it will interact with photons, it emit photons. And, and it'll emit a spectrum of photons that depends on its own temperature. So we'll, we'll get to that eventually. I'm radiating because I have a temperature. This is, this is how night vision goggles work, right? Night vision goggles are picking up the infrared radiation that I put out because I'm at a particular temperature. If I died, I'd be at a colder temperature. Now it emits colder photons. <laughs> so the heat capacity we define as the change in energy uh, for change in temperature. <coughs> so if I have a higher energy, I will, I'm sorry, if I have a higher heat capacity, I can store more energy microscopically in the system. Okay. And what I've defined here, what I've defined here is du by u count, uh, change in internal energy per change in temperature, uh, remember this bracket with the sub V means constant volume. So this is a heat capacity at constant volume. When I take thermodynamic derivatives, I have to be explicit about what I'm holding constant. I could have talked about the heat capacity at constant pressure. Instead of putting a V here, I could put a P here. And say experimentally, I'm not going to hold the volume constant. I'm going to let the volume adjust, and I'm going to put it in a chamber that has a particular pressure, and let the pressure uh, be, be controlled experimentally. So you get to choose which one you're controlling, and then, then you know which kind of heat capacity you're talking about. So for the internal energy of the system being equal to the average microscopic energy running around, heat capacity is du by tau. So you can take this formula we just derived and take the derivative of it, and that'll tell you the heat capacity. So here it is. It's a complicated formula. You get to derive that on your homework. Um, you're supposed to say, oh, goody. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is what you said. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. <laughs> so let's take a, um, kind of running behind a little bit. Can we take a seven minute break and come back at 2.35? Seven minute break, okay. See you in seven minutes. Does anybody have any questions from the, from the break? Oh, I was thought of one thing. Almost. Yes. Um, from last time? Yes. Since none of us knew that log was LN, you might want to mention that in case you have figured that out. Ah, uh, the log we've been using is the natural logarithm. Yeah. Not log base 10. Oh, okay. For what? Okay. Did that mess you up on the homework? Yeah, for right. I might have. I don't remember the problem. Okay. If anybody needs to check that after class, make sure they did their homework correctly. Log was the natural logarithm. Are we ever going to use base 10 log? We have no reason to use base 10. I mean, what, you know, what is the significance of log base 10? It's just because humans have 10 fingers. What's that, you know? So, reversible process. A reversible process is a process, process meaning we did something to the system. A reversible process is a process we do to the system, such as change in volume or pressure or temperature or something. So that the system remains in thermal equilibrium throughout the process. <coughs> thermal equilibrium means that all the little molecules can whack into each other freely and exchange energy that way. So the system remains in thermal equilibrium throughout the process. It has to do with uh, time scale. Okay? That is, if I change the system, 
and wait long, if I change it a little bit and wait long enough, it will equilibrate. And then if I change it again and wait long enough, it will equilibrate. So it's the rate at which I change the system <coughs> compared to other time scales in the problem. So what other time scales do I need to worry about? Hmm. You see what I'm saying? There, it is possible to change the system so fast. So if I take, let me take, uh, uh, let me take a, a box of, of gas, okay, and I'm going to squish it, okay. I can squish it slowly enough to where it stays in thermal equilibrium. It will have a well-defined temperature. It will have a well-defined average energy throughout it as I squish the box. Squish, 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 squish. I could also take the box and whack it suddenly and compress everything into no space. That would not be a reversible process because I did it too fast. Now, can you think of a time scale in the problem that defines what's too fast and what's not too fast? Like for a real experiment? Oh, yeah, yeah, real. We're talking real world, sorry. Oh, yeah, <laughs> very good. There's always the lifetime of a graduate student. As we all know, the way that science gets done in the United States is we have slave labor. Oh, I mean graduate students. Um, so if an experiment takes longer than it takes for somebody to get their PhD, that's a very long time. Question? You get a comment about time scale? Yeah, what would the time scale be like for the like whole system to know what's going on? Okay, sorry. But if you didn't give enough time for the signal to propagate that you were squishing, then like, of course, it would say thermal equilibrium because it doesn't know what body you're choosing. Okay, all right. That is certainly what we have to take into account. Can the system figure out that I did the change? So what are the ways that it would propagate? I, I take the box and I squish the top. How does that information get propagated? Vibration. Oh, what was that? Vibration. Okay, what kind of vibrations? Okay, so the molecules wag into each other and they beat on each other all the way down. That's one of the ways. They could also be shockwaves or something like that. Actually, I don't want shockwaves. Those are extreme, but little. Any kind of any kind of wiggling that gets set up, you know, I need to give that time to, to settle down. So the time scales we're thinking about here have to do with microscopic processes. The way that things equilibrate is one molecule wax into another molecule, which wax into another molecule. So as long as I make changes in the system at a, at a low enough rate, that those microscopic processes had time to transfer throughout the entire system before I changed again and before I changed again, then I'm okay. So those are the, those are the time scales to think about. If I do something too suddenly, it won't have time to propagate through the whole system and go out of equilibrium. So, you know, the way your book says this is that I want the system to remain infinitesimally close to thermal equilibrium throughout the process. Because obviously as I switch it a little bit, there's a little bit of time that it's out of equilibrium while the information transfers. And then I switch it a little bit again, and then a little bit of time propagates. Question? If you wreck it yeah. too fast and you leave it for infinitely long time, would then the system ever come back to yes. equilibrium? Yes, then it will come back to equilibrium. Okay. Yeah. You said that when you're doing it slowly, the time frame is too small to be noticed. That's right, that's right. I want to sneak these steps through to think about it. If the time frame is too small to be noticed, I can sort of sneak these changes into the system and it will remain in thermal equilibrium as I do the process. The process might be squish it, okay, change its volume. It might be uh, change the pressure, okay, which is a similar statement. It, uh, it might be uh, change the temperature, actually. I can change the temperature of something and keep it in thermal equilibrium the whole time as long as I change the temperature. 
prolonging. So reversible process, meaning that it stays in equilibrium throughout the process. So reversible processes, as the name tells you, is that if I go one way and then I undo what I did, I'll get back to the same state. It's reversible. Yeah. So if you heat up a piece of toast really slowly, you won't ever toast it? Go and throw a hole in my theory. <laughs> That's not a reversible process. Um, let's see, why is um, not <laughs> There were chemical reactions that right. took place that you can't undo, really. Wow, that's a great example. Something really slow <laughs> that you can't undo. Good, okay, so slow. Slow enough will most of the time be good, but it's not good enough for your toast. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. Any other comments or ways to break down my theory? black. 
and you took the titties out and you broke them in half and they were really black. And silly me, I wanted to know, was there any sugar left at all? So of course I took a bite. Mm. Horrible. <laughs> Just a charcoal briquette.
of the system uh, at volume V. Now, if I change it to volume V minus delta V, delta V is the small change I'm talking about. So, new energy at V, uh, at the volume of V minus delta V is the original energy minus the next term in the Taylor expansion, minus delta V times VU by dV. Okay, I held this at constant sigma because I'm thinking about a slow enough volume change so that the microscopic wave functions available do not change. Therefore, all the microscopic accessible states do not change and the entropy state is the same. So change in energy, again, is in this case where I'm changing the volume, okay, means that I've done work on the system or I've allowed the system to do work on something else. So this change in energy for this case, I can write out as delta V du by dV. <coughs> and turns out, okay, this term right here, du by dV, is going to be pressure. So let's, let's see why that's the case. You know how work goes. Work is uh, a force acting over a particular distance, and you integrate that force dotted into the distance. That gives you work. Pressure. Hmm. Pressure is a force per area. Okay? So I'm going to manipulate this work equation into something in terms of pressure. So work is integrate force dot ds. I can rewrite force as pressure times area. So here's pressure times area. The ds Sorry, there should be a dot here. Dot uh, dx plus dy plus dz, all the different directions that this uh, pressure change is happening in. And if I take an area, area times a ds change in length, okay, area times the length gives me a volume. So this whole thing together, area dot ds is dv, a volume change of the system. So the total work that the system does would be integrate P times its change in volume. Sorry, over its change in volume. So you're used to work is integrate F dot dS. In this class, it's going to be integrate P dB. And if you do that, you know, if you think microscopically about that, what you're saying is that as the system expands, okay, its pressure has applied a force per area over all those area elements push the system out and, and it's done work. And at constant pressure, then the work that gets done on the system is simply pressure times delta V. Right? So I say that the pressure is constant and pull it out of the integral, integrate dV is just volume 1 minus volume 2, which is the volume change. So at constant pressure, work is P change in volume. So then what we had here for the Taylor expansion of the uh, of the energy change, right? The energy <coughs> here, energy at the new volume is energy at the old volume minus delta V dV by dV. What I'm going to do here is subtract this energy from both sides. Okay, so just pull that over. So U at the new volume minus U at the old volume is minus change in volume dU by dV, which we said work must be equal to pressure times change in volume. So now I can just look here and say, oh look, the pressure here must be whatever is left over, d minus du by dv at constant sigma. So pressure is minus du by dv at constant sigma. Ah, okay. So you can either think of pressure as force per area or 
It's the change in the energy that happens as I change the volume. So, why do you want to hold this to constant? Something not making sense? Okay, so we did a reversible process. We did a reversible process uh, that was isentropic, so the number of states remained unchanged. So it's okay to hold the entity constant. Now, so far, it's probably been a little bit mysterious as to what I hold constant down here, okay? So I'd like to be a little bit more explicit about how you choose those things. And we're going to end up seeing a lot of thermodynamic relations where some quantity is du by d something else. Okay? We're going to get a lot of pairs like this. You've already seen another one, right? What was the other pair you saw already? Yeah, there was the temperature. The temperature was related to uh, u by d sigma. Okay. And so that means that uh, the entropy and the temperature have some sort of relation. The pressure and the volume have some sort of relation. What we're going to see is that there are conjugate variables in thermodynamics. There are conjugate pairs of variables. So you probably <coughs> remember the conjugate concept from quantum mechanics. In quantum <coughs> mechanics, there's such a thing as conjugate variables. Uh, quantum mechanically conjugate variables don't commute. That is, if I take x times p minus p times x, it's not zero. It matters in which order I measure those two quantities. If I measure the position and then the momentum, I'll get a different answer from if I measure the momentum and then I measure the position. So x, the commutator of x of p is i h bar. That's the definition of a quantum mechanically conjugate pair. And you're used to this. This, this is what gave you the uncertainty principle. Anytime you have a quantum mechanically conjugate pair of variables like that, where the commutator has an i, there's an uncertainty principle that goes with it. So you're used to the uncertainty principle being uh, the expectation value of delta x and the expectation value of delta p is greater than or equal to h bar over 2. Meaning, the more you know about the position, the less you know about the momentum, and vice versa. The more you know about the momentum, the less you know about the position. It also means that if you're going to write down your equation, you should use one of the other variables, but you shouldn't expect to be able to use both simultaneously. You should either write down your wave function as a function of position, or you should write down your wave function as a function of momentum. But you really shouldn't do both at the same time because they're not both well defined. So the position momentum conjugateness in quantum mechanics means that if we lived in quantum land, right, and you were speeding, you know, they can write your speeding ticket, okay? Because if the police can point a radar gun at you and measure your momentum, they don't know where you are. So, there you go. He knows you're speeding, but he doesn't know where you are. So, no speeding tickets if H bar is large enough. So, I'm just making an analogy here, okay, to thermodynamically conjugate variables. So you're used to, in quantum mechanics, having conjugate pairs where you use one or the other, okay? And we'll, we will have the same thing in thermodynamics. We will have conjugate variable pairs. And you use one variable or the other. You can't use both at the same time. So here, we saw a conjugate pair come up. When we said that the pressure was minus du by dv, 
the volume and the pressure are thermodynamically constant. What that will end up meaning is when I take an energy differential, delta U, change in the internal energy, and it's equal to P delta V, this pair together is thermodynamically conjugate. So what, what that means uh, in the real world is that when you're doing thermodynamic processes on the system, you need to know your conjugate pairs, okay? Pressure, volume, or conjugate. You can either hold one constant or the other. If you hold both constants, you can't do anything with the system. You hold its pressure constant and its volume constant, it has nerves break down. You try to do something else to it. So you can hold pressure constant, and as you do things to the system, the volume will be free to adjust. Or you can hold the volume constant, and as you do things to the system, the pressure will be free to adjust. So hold one of the other constant, but not both at the same time. It's a star, thermodynamically conjugate matter. So now, this is building up to what's called the thermodynamic identity, where we're going to write out small energy changes in terms of, bless you, in terms of thermodynamically conjugate variable pairs. Okay, so we'll see exactly how uh, changing one variable changes the energy. So to do that, we have to do a little bit of math first and remember how gradients work. So uh, a gradient of a function is dx by dx times x hat plus dx by dy times y hat plus dx by dz times z hat. And what we really mean is this. Okay, when I take these partial derivatives, I really mean, when I say dx by dx, I really mean dx by dx holding y and z constant. I really, mean, I really mean the change only along that direction of space. Here, dx by dy, I really mean the change only in that direction of space. So dx by dy holding x and z constant. dx by dz means hold x and y constant. Okay, so the change then in the function, I can write as dx by dx at y and z constant times dx plus changes in the y direction times dy changes in the z direction times dz. All, uh, if you think of, you know, you're, you're used to gradients where you're thinking about how things change in different axes. In thermodynamics, we're going to have variables running around like temperature and pressure and volume. And if you think of those as different axes, then the thermodynamic identities end up being much like gradients. So here's that gradient equation. The internal energy, okay, is a function of the entropy in the system and the volume of the system. These are the, the natural uh, variables of, the, uh, of the, the energy. So that if I know the entropy and I know the volume, I know the energy that's in the system. And so I can write out changes in the internal energy. Okay, if, I, if I tell you that these are the two variables. Okay. Now, I've left off temperature and I've left off pressure. So it'll become clear soon why I left them out. Okay? But let me, let me just tell you for now that the internal energy, the right way to express it is in terms of sigma and V, not in terms of the pressure and temperature. Okay? We'll do sigma and V. If I tell you that those are the right variables, now you know how to take the differential. A change in U will be U by D sigma at constant V, times d sigma, plus du by dv at constant sigma, times dv. Okay? 
And here is the temperature. du by d sigma constant volume and the temperature. Here is the pressure, du by dv at constant sigma, well, the minus that is the pressure. Okay. So this du ends up being, so now the temperature and pressure have come up. Okay, now we know where all the variables are. du, change in energy, is tau d sigma minus pdv. That is the thermodynamic identity. Okay. Memorize that, make your life easier. Really, I'm writing this one. Don't bother memorizing Sterling's approximation if you didn't do it yet. This one is worth it. Okay. So, what this means physically is that the internal energy of a system changes in the following way. <coughs> the energy will go up as I add heat to the system. The energy will go down as the system does work. So this change in internal energy of the system is heat in minus work out. Tau d sigma is a measure of the heat. And PdV is a measure of the work. That's, that's all there is to this. Notice also that we have conjugate pairs coming up. This is, this is where the conjugate pairs come up. Pressure and volume are a conjugate pair because they show up in the thermodynamic identity as a set. And that means that you're either using volume as your control variable or you're using pressure as your control variable. In this instance, since I'm using a dV, that means volume was my control variable. U is a function of volume. Here, since I'm using d sigma, sigma is a control variable. Now, the difference, okay, why I chose those that way was that the internal energy is a um, uh, is something that scales with the size of the system. Okay, if I take a, t a system and it's got a particular temperature and I double the system size, I do not double the temperature. Temperature is the same. Okay, the temperature is an intrinsic variable. If I take a system size and I double it, I will double the entropy. So the internal energy is defined in terms of changes in variables that are, that's called extensive, it scales the size of the system. That's how you can remember which variable you should take here, okay? So du, something that scales the system size, is tau d sigma, right? I chose the d sigma because sigma scales the system size. I chose the dv instead of dp because v scales the system size, right? Okay, that's your thermodynamic identity and variables that come up together are conjugate pairs. Are there any questions so far? Okay. What we're going to do now is use this for a lot of math. Do you have questions? When you said you're supporting the system size, you don't mean the boundaries like the box, you mean the number of particles. Actually, I mean the boundaries of the box. And that's a good point. I've left out the number of particles. So changing so the boundaries in the box doesn't change the temperature, but it changes the It doesn't change the pressure? Okay, yeah. wait, let's go, let's go over here. So you want to change the boundaries of the box. That's what you're saying when you say double. Right, change the boundaries of the box. Well, okay, when I say double the system size, I'm sorry, I should have been careful about that. What I meant when I said that was take the system, replicate it, and add it back to itself. So you are I didn't actually mean change the volume. I meant, yeah, I also changed the number of parts. So this is a good, good point. I've left out N. N is on to my equation, okay? What we will eventually add to the thermodynamic identity is another term that takes into account the number of particles as a variable that you're able to also control. 
we will have to define its thermodynamic conjugate, which will be the chemical potential. So eventually, your pressure will be adding another term here, plus mu dn, chemical potential times change in number of particles. So for now, we're really thinking, don't change the number of particles. Keep the system, at, you know, whatever number of particles it is, just keep it there at that number of particles. Okay? Other questions? Yeah, get the star. Okay. Okay, look at that, right at the end of lecture. So, this is the summary slide, what we did today. So, we did the following. We derived the Boltzmann factor. The Boltzmann factor is e to the minus energy over tau. This represents the ratio of probability. So the Boltzmann factor told you what's the relative probability of finding the system with energy E versus finding it with energy nothing, zero. And the partition function was the sum over those Boltzmann factors. It told you what the relative weight was of each state coming up. The heat capacity was defined as du by d tau. We'll either have a heat capacity at constant volume or a heat capacity at constant pressure. You may hold one or the other constant, but not the other because they're a thermodynamically conjugate pair. The magic of the partition function was that once you have it, you can use it to take expectation values. Okay? So when you have a partition function, you can take a log and then a derivative, and that will get you, for example, the uh, expectation value of the energy. We define a reversible process. It's slow enough to remain in equilibrium slow enough, and no chemical reactions, <laughs> okay? <coughs> no toast. Pressure is defined as minus du by dv at constant sigma. Work is defined as integrate P to V. The thermodynamic identity uh, is that changes in internal energy are tau d sigma minus PDV, which is heat in minus work out. And notice these conjugate pairs that come up, okay? Temperature and entropy are conjugate, pressure and volume are conjugate, Thermodynamically conjugate variables mean you use one or the other, but not both at the same time. Any questions before we break for the day? Okay, so I'll see you next Wednesday. Have a good Labor Day.